It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hi, and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, more on the secret life of babies. It's a subject we've explored a bit in the past, and we're far from done with it. In the last decade or so, developmental psychologists have managed to do something really momentous. They've cracked the baby code, or at least they've started to. That is, scientists have developed methods that allow them to peer into the minds of young infants. And what researchers are finding has come as a revelation. Many now believe that infants are a lot further along, cognitively speaking, than formerly thought. Just because they lack verbal and motor skills, do a lot of burbling and drooling, doesn't mean that they aren't also observing, thinking, and sizing things up in some pretty sophisticated ways. The old view was that babies are adorable little airheads, empty vessels waiting to be filled by experience. The new view is that they actually have a lot on their minds, long before they've had much opportunity to learn from us adults. Well, today we're going to begin to map out one part of the baby mental universe, their moral sensibility. The psychologist Paul Bloom says that babies do indeed have a sense of morality, of right and wrong, naughty and nice, and they have it from very early on, maybe even from birth. He'll present some of the evidence in just a moment, so go get yourself a nice pacifier and pay attention. And now on to today's interview with Paul Bloom about the moral life of babies. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at Yale University and author of Descartes' Baby, How the Science of Child Development Explains What Makes Us Human. Paul, you and, and your wife, um, Karen Wynn? Yes, and this is also done with uh, Kylie Hamlin, a okay. graduate student working with us. And, and the three of you and, and, and some other collaborators all work in something called the Infant Cognition Center at okay. Yale. That's right. What's the nickname for that? It must have a nickname. Baby Lab. Baby Lab. I was going to guess that. <laughs> well, the first question and biggest question I'm sure on anyone's mind is, you know, for much of human history, babies, we've had an intuitive idea of what babies are thinking, often wrong, but, um, but how do you know for sure? I mean, they can't talk, they can't follow instructions very well or at all. I mean, how do you investigate a baby's mind? I think it was one of the great breakthroughs in developmental psychology when people started to figure out how to answer that question. And... Um, what you do is you try to exploit some of the few things that they can do. Um, they can't talk. They can't uh, give explanations. But they could do things like reach. And for younger babies, they could look. They could focus their eyes in different directions. And you can use this as a cue to what they're interested in, what surprises them, what they like. So for our original morality studies, um, we showed babies different scenes. They were one character struggling to get up a hill. And another character helps it up the hill. A third character pushes it down. Then we hold up in front of the baby the helper and the hinder, and we see which one they prefer, which one they tend to reach for. Um, for very young babies, like three-month-olds, we see which one they look at. Mm -hmm. This is a crude measure of what they prefer. And, and, and you're sure from having done this kind of thing a lot, these, these experiments, these little um, stories in a way that you, you, you present to babies and then watch as they either look or reach for you know, certain characters in the scene, you're sure these aren't just random motions? Well, um, they definitely aren't because we get systematic findings. So we find that they always choose, uh, almost always choose the good guy. They almost always prefer to look at the good guy. 
they almost always prefer to reward the good guy. They almost always prefer to punish the bad guy. And we find these systematic uh, preferences. Now, um, one worry that always comes up in this research is whether they're resonating to what we, ho- what we have constructed to be good and bad characters or whether they're focusing on superficial aspects of the scene. So right. If the good guy was always yellow mm-hmm. and then they always reach for the good guy, maybe they just like yellow. Right. Or if the good guy is always on the right, maybe they like to, to reach on the right. So we control for this by very carefully alternating the color and shape of the good guy versus the bad guy. So the, if the yellow's good in one, uh, for one baby, it'll be bad for another baby. Mm-hmm. If it's to the right for one baby, it'll be to the left for another baby. And so that's one sort of experimental control we do. Another experimental control is that we, um, we make sure that when the babies make their choice, nobody else around them could cue them. So their parents have their eyes closed, and the person holding up the characters for them to choose is herself blind to uh, who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. Why don't we get into more detail here and have you describe what you call um, these little morality plays that you um, have performed for, um, for infants. You, you talked about helpers and hinderers, good guys and bad guys. Give us some scenarios here. Well, here's another scenario. You have a, a puppet in the middle, and it's playing with a ball. It's sort of hold, bouncing the ball up and down. And then it rolls the ball to another puppet, and this puppet um, rolls the ball back. That's scene one. Scene two, you have the puppet in the middle, now it turns to another puppet, this time say it was on the left, rolls the ball to this other puppet, but instead of passing the ball back, this other puppet runs away with it. Now you take both puppets, um, one of the one who, who passed the ball back and the one who ran away uh, with it, and you hold them out to the baby. And the question is, which one will the baby reach for? Um, in another experiment, the question might be, which one will the baby punish by taking away something from? And that's the second morality play involving giving and taking. Um, that we use for um, as another way of sort of indicating how babies make sense of the morality of different characters. You have this one puppet who's a nice puppet who shares the ball. You have another puppet who's a mean puppet who steals the ball. Exactly. And, and you even you not only let the baby reach for the the one he she prefers, but you you have also created a scenario where the baby can reward or punish the good guy or the bad guy, and, and they systematically, consistently reward the good guy and punish the bad guy? Exactly. By and taking uh, away treats or giving treats? Exactly. So, so and, and this is, if it was just preference, one would say, well, that maybe not, that, that's not very moral at all. Maybe it's just the one they choose to approach. And it, admittedly, it's very difficult to, to answer the question, how moral is it? Is it moral? Is it proto-moral? Is this thing very similar to adult morality? But one way we, we try to address the question is we take certain things that are true for adults and we see whether they hold for children. Mm-hmm. So adults, if you think somebody did a good act, you would be more inclined to reward them than punish them. If you think somebody did a bad act, you'd be inclined uh, more to punish them than to reward them. And with a recent study with eight-month-olds, we took it one step further. Um, we had the good guy and the bad guy, and the babies watched as one did good and one did bad. And then they watched as other characters interacted with this. And we found that if another character was nice to the good guy and mean to the bad guy, babies would like this character. But if a character was nice to the bad guy and mean to the good guy, babies wouldn't like that character. <laughs> so babies are not only judging the morality of the characters themselves, but rather the morality of those who interact with them. They have a sense of justice. Exactly. Um, and, and that is you know, an amazing experiment, at least I, I think it is. Um, eight months old. 
um, and they're already um, they already have a strong sense of how uh, people who do good or people who do bad should be treated by other people. And by the way, one thing that, that's striking to me is that. In none of these instances is it a case of the baby operating out of pure selfishness. It's not like the characters have done anything good or bad to the baby. Exactly, and that, that, that's important. That's an important part of our experimental setup. These are strangers to the baby. Uh, the babies themselves are not harmed or helped. The babies themselves are not in a situation where they're going to interact with these characters later. So we did this because one hallmark for morality is, um, is that it's, related to third, third parties, you're not necessarily involved. If somebody smacks you and you get mad at them, it's not clear as a moral response as opposed to a self-interested one. Mm-hmm. But if you see two strangers on the street and one slaps the other and you feel that was awful and you feel a sort of moral outrage, that is moral, at least in part because it's directed to people other than yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any lingering sense in your mind that there might be some other explanation other than what you and I would call moral impulses? Um, any other possible source of preference? Well, no and yes. So the no part is we've now done so many studies using very different methods that um, very different sorts of good acts and very different sort of bad acts, different measures of what babies know, that I'm confident, more confident than I am about most things that babies really aren't responding to anything superficial. It's uh-huh. not like we messed up and all the good guys are green or something like that, or they're all moving uphill. Uh, we've done a lot of controls, some just too boring to talk about, designed to exclude all those interpretations. So I'm not worried about that. What I am worried about, and why your question's a good one, is to what extent does this baby morality relate to the sort of thing that you and I would call moral? Um, and... To me, it's pretty clear it's not one and the same. Adults have a lot that babies lack. Um, for one thing, babies, uh, baby morality is, I think, very local. There's very much there's a lot of evidence that babies favor those who look like them, of the same skin color, who speak the same, the same language as their parents, who look the same. Now, adults have that too, but adults can also transcend that. We could we could have moral principles and moral um, evaluations that apply to all experiencing and feeling creatures. And babies can't do that. So I think what we find in babies uh, is the foundations of later moral understanding and moral action. But, um, but there's still quite a gap. And, and, and the size of the gap and how we, how we traverse it is, for me as a developmental psychologist, a very interesting question. Mm. Do you have a, some sense of a timetable, you know, stages at which various sort of moral faculties develop? Not really. One of, one, of the, one of the big surprises for me is how early all of the baby stuff came in. Um, when we got our results for six-month-olds, my colleagues suggested we bring it down to three-month-olds, and I, I argued with them. I said, this is going to be a huge waste of time. A three-month-old? Yes. I mean, three-month-olds are the bags of oatmeal, the bread loaves. But my colleagues won me over, or actually, to be more honest, they just did it and ignored me. And... Um, and it turns out three-month-olds in their looking time, because they're too young to reach, yeah. in their looking time show exactly the same preferences we find in older babies. So Amazing. on the one end, I think that the moral evaluations we find, we've been finding in our studies, are going to go back as young as you can test them using our methods. The, 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 the deeper question is what happens to these um, babies that, in, under which they turn into adults? How do the more abstract moral principles develop? How does the more... Um, a more inclusive morality grow. Mm. Mm. And I don't know. I, I think that that would, to a large extent, vary from culture to culture. 
I think many humans over history never really transcended their baby morality. Mm. That the moral system remained a series of gut impulses and reactions. And, um, but in a culture like ours, like most cultures right now, um, where people do talk about transcendent principles of justice or, or, or fairness, um, or where, where there's law and where there's general procedures to apply for all people, something must happen to each individual child to lead to a transformation. And it's something which I'm fascinated by, but I honestly don't know the answer. Hmm. Um, just want to explore a little bit more just the basic uh, awareness uh, of babies. Um, your team and, and other developmental psychologists have done a number of experiments that show that young babies also um, have basic sense of logic, of, of physics. For instance, if you show them you know, events that, that are physically impossible, like things floating in the air you know, without any support, um, they also stare at those longer, indicating that, that they think that's weird, right? That's right. Uh, I, I'm admittedly very biased in this, but I think these discoveries about babies that you're alluding to is really one of the great discoveries of our time, certainly one of the great discoveries in modern psychology. So, and I, and I can say this because it's not my work. It's work done by, by many, many other people. But what we're finding is that... Um, even young babies seem to have a very rich understanding of the physical world and the psychological world, the world of material objects and the world of people. And we, we know this using the same methods that I've been describing before. For instance, like you said, um, you show them a scene that violates gravity, they're surprised. You show them a scene where an object goes through a wall or where um, an object uh, is put behind the screen and then isn't there anymore when the screen drops, they're surprised. If you show them one plus one, uh, one object behind the screen and another object behind the screen, they expect two. Mm-hmm. They don't expect one or three. Now, this is objects, but there are some really cool studies looking at their expectations about people. Yeah. So they expect people to obey goals. They expect people, if you're heading towards an object, they don't expect you to take a roundabout route. They expect you to go straight to it. If you, they expect people to have beliefs, and these beliefs might not even match the world. So in a lovely study done um, a little while ago, Babies watched as somebody puts an object um, behind a screen and an, and, and an observer looks at the object. The observer turns away, then the object is moved. Even these babies before their second birthday expect that person to reach for the object where it was originally, not where it now is. In other words, they expect people to behave in accord with how they believe the world to be even if that's different from how the world actually is. Mm, so, so, so the object was moved without the, the person knowing it. The baby did not expect, in your interpretation, the person to go where the object actually had been moved, but rather where the, the person remembered it being. And uh, that certainly indicates what um, you psychologists and philosophers call a theory of mind. It does. It does. It, it, it in particular uh, indicates an understanding of false belief. And if you took intro psych or developmental psych for the last 20 years, you would be told that that understanding emerges when people hit, when children become four or five or six. Uh-huh, really? And, and, really? and, these, and these psychologists, <laughs> this is an experiment by Christine Onishi and Rene Bayarjan, just startled the world in this wonderful science paper where they demonstrated that, that toddlers and babies have this understanding. Um, just briefly, I want to um, ask about one little experimental detail, an interpretive detail here. In the case of, of the studies you've been talking about in the last couple minutes, you've been um, taking a looking time, that is how long a baby looks at something, as an indication of um, surprise, something out of the ordinary has happened, right? 
in the case of the morality plays, you took looking time as an indication of approval or, or attraction to the good guy in, in the morality play. Are those two inconsistent interpretations of this action? That's a good question. They would be if the situations were identical. Uh-huh. But there's a subtle difference here. In the experiments that use looking time as a measure of surprise, the baby sees a single scene. And then we, we look at how babies react to changes in the scene. And if they look longer, this at least indicates some sort of interest or surprise. Um, something, something captures their attention. In the morality studies, particularly in their study with three-month-olds, what we do is we show babies two objects at the same time. In this case, two characters. One on their right, one on the right side of their, of their field of vision, one on the left side. And we look to see which one the baby looks at, looks, prefers to look at. Mm-hmm. And in these studies where babies have a choice on which one to look at, there's abundant evidence that they prefer to look at that which, we, which, which uh, pleases them mm. the most. Mm. But for a single scene, the extent to which they look at something depends on um, how interesting or engaging they find it. I see. So novelty would be you exactly. know, an attractor in that case. Yeah. Now, now you, you're raising a good general point, which is people are skeptical about looking time results. And to some extent, it's never clear what to, make, what to say when babies look longer at scene X versus scene Y. It could be that it engages them more, maybe it distresses them, maybe it fascinates them. So what you want to do for all of these experiments, in developmental psych more generally, is develop converging methods. This is why we're comfortable interpreting the looking time results the way we do, because they're in perfect lockstep with the reaching results. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and in any case, I mean, even if you were wrong that looking time means I'm interested in that or I like that, there's no doubt statistically that they're discriminating. I mean, um, that they're consistently discriminating between two different kinds of situations, and uh, it's indicated by how long they look at something. So, You've captured just the way the developmental psychologists like to look at, look at things. If babies look differently at X, versus Y. It's hard to know whether they like X more or they're surprised by Y or whatever, but this tells you for sure that they're sensitive to a difference between X and Y. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for the sort of studies we're interested in, the sort of conclusions we want to draw, that's all we need. Right. Now, you were saying that in these experiments indicating awareness of other minds, uh, expectations of other minds, a uh, kind of model of how people should behave and what other people know, you were saying that this has been done with babies at um, just under two years, I think you said, right? The false belief studies have been done with babies, um, yes, just, just before their second birthday. Um, how, how early do they start to show signs, though, of that, that capability of, of recognizing that there are other, other minds out there? It depends the sort of aspect of an understanding of other minds you're interested in. So at a quite early age, um, in, within the first, um, I think, six to eight months of life, they, they show an ability to detect animate movement. So they, they draw a distinction between um, people and other things. This understanding of false belief seems to emerge later in, our, in, in the experiments that have been done. Though to be honest, this might just be in large part because the experiment is more complicated mm-hmm. and it's difficult for other reasons to get young babies to sit through it. It might be if you had sensitive enough measures you'd find that, that even much younger babies understand false belief. <laughs> Do you have any um, fantasies about some way of measuring um, things that, that, that's even more exacting or more revealing than these reaching and uh, looking studies? It would be nice. It, it, the, the holy grail for a lot of this work is the neuroimaging yeah. methods, and there's a lot of people 
doing various ways to scan baby brains. Uh-huh. I think the truth is, though, at least at this point, the brain scan data tends to be a lot cruder than what you get from eye movement at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. We're doing some, we've long been interested in a somewhat different measure, which is babies' facial expressions. And this speaks to different issues, but, but it also speaks to the issue of the nature of these evaluations. So if you just look at the babies, and we have not done this systematically yet, but you just look at them, um, it's clear that they're not cold-bloodedly analyzing the scene and making decisions. Um, they sort of, they're very, they, they're, they're happy when they see the good guy. Mm-hmm. They kind of sneer at the bad guy. Mm-hmm. They look distressed when a bad event happens. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they get mad. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the hard work needs to be done of filming the baby's facial expressions and blind coding them, having them coded by people who don't know what the babies are looking at. Right. But my bet is that when you do that, you'll find that babies are responding emotionally as adults do with, with uh, appropriate emotions to appropriate scenes of, uh, of people in trouble, of people helping others, of people harming others. Now, uh, we've talked about awareness of others. What about self-awareness? Um, are there experiments that indicate how early you know, some sense of oneself develops? There's, there's a lively literature on the mirror task which is one of the few ways uh, scientists have, have found to address the question of, um, of knowledge of self. So, for instance, in one variant of the task, you put a mark on a baby's face and show the baby a mirror. And the question is, at what age can the baby reach and realize that the baby's looking at him or herself mm. and notice the mark? And this has been done with various other animals, too, including chimpanzees and dolphins. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very crude measure and very controversial. I think it's safe to say that an understanding of the baby's own knowledge of self is a lot harder to study than knowledge of others. And similarly, the, the same issue, you could ask the same question about morality. I've often wondered what babies think of their own actions. Yes. They can think well, of their own actions yes. as praiseworthy or bad, as warranting a pride or guilt. But we just, you know, if, if somebody... If somebody's clever enough to figure out how to study it, I wish they'd let me know. <laughs> well, well, you anticipated uh, one of my next questions, which is we, we've talked about their seemingly um, strong sense of right and wrong when it comes to the behavior of others, these puppets and so on. Does this translate into um, um, doing the right thing on the part of the baby? Do we see that they have a sense of their own actions and their consequences? With babies of, the, of, of age uh, younger than um, 12 months, we don't have the foggiest idea. It's uh-huh. very hard to tell. Uh-huh. They, they don't do enough to, uh-huh. to really warrant, you know, praise or blame themselves. Uh-huh. As you get into the second year of life, what you find is you find altruistic behavior on the part of babies. You find babies, um, when they see somebody else in pain, might reach over to soothe them, might hand over a toy or a bottle. And then you move a year later to, to a two-year-olds, and then they could behave altruistically in a very interesting way. They could um, often they, they, they'll pass things over to a person. They'll open up boxes to help other people, and uh, they seem to be motivated to behave altruistically. Hmm. And it's not like it, it's not like babies are just you know these perfectly noble savages, these wonderful, <laughs> wonderful, all giving, all loving creatures. You know, they could they they really can be little monsters sometimes. But I think they I think any normal baby, any normal toddler has the capacity for goodness. And just like you and me, they might choose to exercise that capacity sometimes more than others. Any sense of, of how and when conscience develops? It's a very hard question. Um, babies, seem to sh- babies and toddlers seem to show signs of guilt, roughly when they're two, maybe when they're three. But it's very hard to tell. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. It's very hard to tell. The emergence of guilt and shame. Look at the emergence of guilt and shame. <laughs> and a creature who can't yet speak yeah. is, is just very difficult. Mm. And, and at this point, it's one of these many mysteries in my field. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned a, a little while back that um, babies show preferences for people who belong to their, their group, the, the people they're familiar with, I should say. Right? I mean, they yeah. show preferences for their own language, they show preferences for their own skin color, or maybe it's more accurate to say the skin color that they're familiar with, right? That's right. And, and, and actually, um, the, the experiment's been done. So um, children prefer people of their own skin color. Um, white kids prefer white people, black kids prefer black people. But the exception is children who are raised in mixed-race households. And that suggests that they aren't really resonating to their own skin color, rather than resonating to the skin color of people around them. So they like what's familiar. Yes, babies. Babies may not even know what color they are mm-hmm, right. until quite or, or what sex they are until right. quite a while. But there's a tremendous familiarity bias for both babies and for adults. We tend to like what we're familiar with, um, and we tend to um, to feel better towards what we're familiar with. A, a good argument maybe for wide exposure to diverse environments at an early age. I think that I think that that's true. Uh huh. We're not saying though that babies are racist. <laughs> I, I am. I know that's a crude way of putting it, but I'm sure some people are worried that somehow innately we are we are bigots. You know, there was a headline on the website Gawker about my work, which um, which has something to the effect of you know, babies are bigots, <laughs> and um, I think that's somewhat of an overstatement. <laughs> they they show. Uh, I think a safer way to put it is they show in group preferences. Right. Right. And and um, and I think all humans in-group preferences. If you don't have it on the basis of race um, or language, um, certainly we all have it on the basis of family and friends. I mean, they even have preferences for people who eat the same foods or like the same foods. Yes. But you find the same thing with, with adults. The interesting thing about adults is we can override them. So I, I could acknowledge that I favor people who are like me in all sorts of ways over those who aren't. But I can also say a fair and a just moral system would draw no distinction. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, that step uh, towards universality, towards impartiality, is, I think, one of the great steps you know, of, our, of our species. And a product of civilization, you think? Exactly, yeah. So the old story, the Enlightenment and so on, really has improved our, our morality, uh, improved on nature. I think that's right. I think the baby results are sort of a good news, bad news thing, where the good news is babies start off with a rich and powerful morality. And the bad news is it's not quite the morality that we want them to have. And uh, culture and enlightenment and civilization serves to, to, bring, you know, to bring them towards a better morality. Well, in, in terms of the things that we wouldn't like them to have, we've already talked about things that uh, I think are re- very reassuring. They, they have an innate sense of fairness, of um, being nice to people or being naughty toward people, and that being nice is better, and that people who do the right thing should be rewarded and so on. The negative thing that you've raised is that, well, you know, something of a, of a preference for whatever's familiar, which is not necessarily at all the same as bigotry or hostility toward unfamiliar things. It isn't, but to some extent life is zero-sum. Mm-hmm. And if you give resources to, to some, others will, others will get less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the most impressive studies here have been done, not with babies or toddlers, but with some of older children. And what they find is that, that and this is, this is somewhat disappointing, but people are extremely eager to divvy themselves up into social groups based even on the most arbitrary of cues. 
So, for instance, like a random coin toss. Right. Giving half the kids T-shirts of one color and half the kids T-shirts of another color. And once you divvy them up, they favor their own group. Mm-hmm. And psychologists debate over the extent to which there's hatred towards the other group or simply they're not favored as much. But to some extent, it might come down to the same thing. If I'm giving my group more than your group, there's an inequity. Right. And, it, and even if I have no animus towards your group, it's still relative to my group. You can't left. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, the, the big, big question that so many people are asking is, what are the implications of, of these studies for education, child-rearing? Have you learned anything that, that really has practical implications at this point? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I I'm, I, I might be an unusual developmental psychologist, but I think that um, I, I'm very conscious about the implications of this work towards parenting. If, if, if parents are happy with how they're interacting with their kids, they should keep on, on doing it. I think the implications of this work um, are, to some extent, broader in that they speak to different conceptions of human nature. And to the extent that they would matter to parents, I think that um, I think an appreciation of results from developmental psychology, including... From, from this lab, but also including for all the other wonderful findings, affect how you see your child in a positive way. You, you, you look at a baby, and it, you could just marvel at the extraordinary complexity of its very small brain. And I think that for parents to know this and for parents to, to learn about the developmental data is, is just exhilarating. Um. You said that you think you know these findings made collectively by people in your field that that there's a whole lot going on in babies that we 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 didn't expect are a really significant breakthrough in our understanding of, of sort of the human mind, human development, and so on. And it's really a story of having underestimated them badly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, why do we do that? <laughs> uh, because they look so stupid. <laughs> they 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 look they look. Um, the most loving of parents might say, "Wow, I guess they're great learning machines or something." But they, but but particularly a young baby, looks adorable as all get out. But 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 they look stupid because because they can't show their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so I don't I don't hold anything against people who think they are in fact stupid and they do have to learn everything. It's one of the surprising findings that how much they actually know. And the. The, the motivation for the finding came from different sources, including studies of non-human animals and studies of, of, of evolution and what you'd expect to have evolved, as well as studies of, of that, that address the question of what children have to have in their heads to become adults. It turns out that in order to learn, do all the learning that children have to do, they have to start off with significant knowledge. Mm-hmm. But still, if you look at a baby, you, you'd be underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But uh, is this is this something um, to to draw back and take a longer view? Is this something that human beings have always done? Have they always underestimated children and and by extension animals as well? Or is this as is so often um, claimed a product of relatively recent Western uh, rationality uh, that marginalized all these these beings who aren't uh, you know sort of European adult humans? And uh, are we gradually working our way back to, to an understanding we might have had a long time ago that was a lot more intuitive and maybe more accurate? I think it's fair to say that, that, that you're right and that there are radical differences across space and time in how people think about babies. Um, and we live in, a, in an era, for whatever reason, where we tend to think about babies as, um, as um, what one philosopher described as perfect idiots. Yeah. Um, just just <laughs> em, em, empty heads. 
And there are other times and other places where people had different views about babies. For, so, for instance, um, there are some societies where there's no belief at all that babies have to be taught anything. The belief is they'll simply learn it automatically. They'll learn how to walk and they'll learn how to talk simply by observing. While many people in our culture believe that babies must be constantly given toys and games and educational programs and flashcards and all of that, and if not, they're going to grow up to be morons. And, and if you make even a slight mistake in choosing any of those things, you may screw them up. That's right. And, and somebody, somebody who's an economist or sociologist could point out why we have those beliefs. And sort of um, the huge market forces designed to convince parents that unless they buy certain products, um, their baby is destined for death row. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, but, but, I think, but, it, but I think that that does vary from culture to culture. And, and maybe, maybe the scientific consensus is bringing us back to a more reasoned view about the capacity of babies. Do you have any dream experiments that you're working on that you just can't wait to do? I'll tell you about an experiment that I can't do, that I'd love to do, um, but, um, but I can't do it for ethical reasons, unless I figure out some way to do it that would cause babies less harm. The study would be this. Um, what we do is we show now bad guys being punished, and we see what babies think about that. But what I've always wondered is, what would happen if babies themselves had the possibility to punish the bad guy? Suppose in front of a baby, a six-month-old, there was a pad. And if the baby slapped at the pad, the character would get shocked and scream in pain. Would babies punish themselves, punish these characters, the bad ones? And um, to me, that's a fascinating question because it speaks to the force of their moral motivation. But um, it'd be very difficult to convince parents to let us do that with their babies. To, to, get, to give that kind of power to a baby would be exactly. scary? Exactly. It, 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 it might... Um, they, they might never want. To, they may never want to relinquish it. Well, your 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 lab is located uh, very near where the famous uh, experiments at Yale took place um, decades ago by Stanley Milgram. Is that right? That's right. This is in in the um, this is done in the Infant Cognition Lab, which is a lab that uh, my wife Karen Wynn runs, and it's a few blocks away from um, I forget the name of the building, but a large building where Stanley Milgram would bring New Haven residents in and convince them that they were murdering a stranger. He would do a, a very famous experiment on obedience, where somebody would instruct uh, these these poor subjects to give uh, somebody an electric shock that gradually rose and rose and rose until it became fatal. And the subjects didn't know that this person was a Confederate, an actor, pretending to be shocked. They thought they were actually killing somebody. But still, they followed instructions of this experimenter. Right, so people who thought they were actually seriously injuring or even killing people did so on command in these experiments and it's you know it's a, an infamous experiment it's so um it's it's so upsetting the results are so um so disquieting uh it's meant to uh you know it suggests that this is how we become mass murderers or or uh, or nazis or something like that and you want to do the same thing with babies huh that's my hope <laughs> and my dream <laughs> shame on you <laughs> <laughs> Well, Paul, it's been, it's been really interesting. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank I'm you, Paul. Sure. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at Yale University. He's also the author of the forthcoming book, How Pleasure Works, The New Science of Why We Like What We Like. And he'll be joining us on this show in the near future to talk about the book. This show is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll be back in just a moment. And in the second half of the show, we're going to be staying on the theme of human development, but look at the other end of the life cycle. We'll consider the relationship between aging and happiness.
Okay, from babyhood to late adulthood and from morals to moods. An interesting psychological study came out this past week on people's feelings of well-being at various ages. And the results may surprise you. Contrary to the widespread idea that we peak in young adulthood and it's all downhill from there, when it comes to happiness, at least, youth may be overrated and old age may be the real sweet spot. The study came out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and it was led by psychologist Arthur Stone at Stony Brook University, who joins us to talk about it. You recently compiled the results of of, of a nationwide survey you did, um, assessing people's levels of well-being and happiness. Is that right? The study was run by the Gallup organization, and I had access to those results. And yes, I did analyses looking at age and well-being. Oh, oh. so um, you assessed the results, but you weren't responsible for the survey itself? The Gallup Corporation, in collaboration with Healthways, another corporation, have been doing this survey since January 2nd, 2008. The questions that I looked at, I had a hand in developing, but um, there are many, many questions on the survey. I see, I see. And this is a survey of 340,000 adults in the U.S.? Yes, the way that they run the survey is every day of the year, they interview a thousand people around the United States via telephone. And so the the total number of individuals uh, who who were surveyed then turns out to be 340,000? The number that we analyzed for the study was about 340-something thousand. They actually hit closer to 352,000, but we did not use all of the data. I see. That strikes me as, as, as a really huge number in a survey. When we look at political surveys, you know, pre-election surveys and things like that, they're usually assessing somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 to 2,000, and that's all the sample size they need to, to uh, generally estimate the, uh, the political leanings of, of the entire nation or the entire electorate. Why, why so many in this study? Well, I think that the idea behind the survey is that the Gallup organization wants to a pulse, if you will, on the attitudes and well-being in the country. So to do that, they decide they would make this tremendous effort, and you're right, it's a huge effort, to survey a thousand people every day. So um, what sort of, sort of questions were asked about happiness and well-being? Yeah, there were basically two kinds of questions, and this is one of the features of the paper that's kind of new. Typically in large-scale surveys done in the United States and around the world, there's a kind of well-being question that's asked that's called a life satisfaction or global load. And that's something along the lines of taking in all things together, how well is your life going? And what's interesting about those questions is that they demand a high degree of a person's judgment or evaluation. Think about it for a second. When I'm, when I'm asking you to tell me about how satisfied you are with life, there are lots of different ways you could do it, lots of different comparisons you could use. So that's one kind of well-being, this life satisfaction. The second type of well-being, and this is what's new in our survey, has to do with what's called hedonic well-being or affect. And that's really getting at how are you feeling. And the way that we asked those questions in the survey was to ask, how are you doing yesterday? So let me give you an example. We asked people, were you feeling a lot of stress yesterday, yes or no? Were you feeling a lot of happiness yesterday? And that's a fairly short time frame. We know from lots of other research about how people's recollections work that having a short time frame is important for getting accurate data. But, but why ask about yesterday? Why not today? Because we 
don't know that if we were to ask about uh, today, that would demand that all of the surveys be done at the end of the day. Some of these surveys were being done earlier in the morning. Oh, I see. And so there wasn't very much of a day to talk about. I see. So, so you're saying that um, a lot of surveys have asked about life satisfaction, asking people to assess the state of their life, their state of contentment, whereas this was a very specific question about how they felt. Correct. We asked both of them, and I think the interesting finding, or one of the interesting findings in the paper, is that there are differences in life satisfaction versus mood when you look at um, people's age. Uh-huh. And what are those differences? Well, I have to tell you first about the pattern of life satisfaction. Yes. It's typically kind of U-shaped, and what I mean by that is um, folks in their 20s have, fairly, have higher levels of life satisfaction. Then it drops off. Uh, towards dipping to the lowest point around the 50s, and then it starts heading back up after 50, hitting about the same levels at 70 that there were at age 20. So that's a U-shaped pattern, if you will. What we found for some of the mood items was a very different pattern. So, for example, with the item, did you feel a lot of stress in your life yesterday, it starts out highest in the 20s with about 50% of the folks sampled saying yes to that question, I have a lot of stress in my life, and then it drops off in a, in a linear or a line-like way all the way down through the early 80s. Now, that, so that's one pattern. There's a big drop-off, and you're going from about 50% to about 18% of people responding affirmatively to that question. So that's a very different pattern. And then for another aspect looked at worrying, what we found there was a somewhat different pattern, and it was this, that from, the t- from age 20s through age 50, worrying levels were about the same. Once you hit age 50, they started dropping off to about half of the earlier level by age 70. So that, that's worrying. Uh, what other emotions did you, did you study? We looked at um, sadness, and sadness didn't do very much by age. It didn't vary by, it just varied by a few percentage points from one age to the other. Uh, We also looked at anger, and anger had a very similar pattern to stress, where it dropped off from the 20s all the way through the 80s. Uh huh. And what about the positive emotions? The positive emotions in this survey were how happy were, um, did you experience a lot of happiness yesterday? Did you have a lot of enjoyment yesterday? And they tended to follow this kind of U-shaped curve. Um, so that's another of the points of the study is that when you're looking at well-being, looking at the negative side of well-being gives you a somewhat different picture than looking at the positive side. Uh, summarize how the, how the picture is different. Well, the, the picture for the positive emotions, um, for enjoyment and for happiness, is kind of this U-shaped pattern, very similar to what I mentioned for life satisfaction, whereas for the negative emotions, there's this, there tends to be this drop-off from the 20s all the way through the 80s. I see. So, so if I could attempt to sum up, your picture of happiness through all the life stages of people is that it, um, it drops off through middle life and then picks up again at around the age of 50, and continues to, to, to increase or, or hold steady through old age? 
it tends to increase. Tends to increase through old age. From, from late middle age to old age, we tend to get happier, according to this data. You tend to have more life satisfaction and more happiness, yes. More life and less, less worrying, less stress, and less anger. Less worrying, less stress, and less anger. And, 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 and as for those, those, those negative emotions, some of them um, drop off steadily from the age of 20, and some of them actually uh, drop off sharply at the age of 50, or at least one of them, worrying, right? Correct. Um, this is being reported in the press as, you know, happiness begins at 50 or something like that, that life gets better at 50, that the old saying, the golden years, is in some, some way true. Are you thinking that that's a, a fair conclusion at this point? Well, if, you, if you're looking at it in terms of uh, the, the negative emotions, for, for anger and for stress, it's dropping off from age 20 through age 70 at the same rate. So there's nothing particularly outstanding about age 50. Mm-hmm. But for worrying, there is a difference where uh, worrying stays about the same from the 20s through the 50s and then drops off. But it's not that things dramatically get better at age 50. That's when the drop-off in worrying begins. So people at age 50 are very similar to people at age 25 or 35 or 45. It's when, that's when it starts to drop off. So 50 is a sort of turning point, at least with regard to some of those, those feelings. Correct. In a good way. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and that's what's surprising about all of this, for all of the results, the life satisfaction results, as well as these results on affect or mood, is that this is all happening as people are aging and having more and more physical health problems. And so just from that perspective, one might have thought, well, people may become less happy and more worried, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And I think there's a good deal of surprisal value there. Definitely surprising. And, and, and is it tied to anything in, in the sort of objective circumstances of these people's lives uh, that you could identify? That's a great question. The study wasn't really designed to get at a lot of these, but we had a few. So we looked at, for example, whether or not children being at home children leaving, to be more exact, had an influence on well-being, increasing it. And that wasn't the case. We also looked at some other factors having to do with retirement and others, and they absolutely did not change this pattern that I've described to you so far. What about the one that most people, I think, would would think of immediately, uh, and that is income? Um, Income did not have a big role here either. So typical socioeconomic factors didn't seem... It all related to, to people's happiness at various life stages? Yes, and, and there is other, there's other work supporting that. Uh, income has a huge impact at the very lowest levels. Going from being very poor to less poor has a big impact on your well-being. But there's a good deal of new research coming out suggesting that once you hit a certain level, having more and more money doesn't make you more happy. As a matter of fact, some research that... I've been involved with with others, has shown that it may be, too, that people who have more money are working more, and working more is associated with less happiness. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you say at a certain point, you mean sort of at the... the uh, certain uh, income level. Right, but, but that point would be, what, uh, the upper bound of, of poor or lower bound of, of middle class? Where exactly is it that... Uh, 
income doesn't Actually, seem to I, matter. I don't recall that. Okay, okay. But it's somewhere pretty low on the income scale that, that income ceases to make people happier, is what you're saying. Correct. It's, it's not when you get to a million dollars per year. It's, it's way down there. Yes, that's correct. Um, what about, uh, is there any uh, sense that this could be just true uh, in a particular culture, i.e. the United States, at a particular time in history? Or, or do you think this is generalizable beyond uh, this time and place? We actually don't know that for the affective variables, the new ones in the study, because we only have done this for 2008. And any given year has particular quirkiness to it. Um, but we do know for the life satisfaction that that U-shaped relationship that I described, we know from other studies in other countries over different years that that tends to be fairly robust across years and across countries. Mm. One of one of the many aspects of the study, I think, that, that, that are surprising, you hinted at it earlier, is um, that in, in late old age, when, when physical infirmity, you know, becomes a real problem, you're still finding people... Uh, at least as, as, they, as they sort of assess their own mood and their own condition, doing, doing pretty well. Yeah, there are some theories uh, that may help, to help us to understand that. And we didn't have the opportunity to test those theories in the study, but the theory goes something along the following line. When you're younger, you tend to have a uh, forward-looking, far-reaching outlook, and that is you're trying to strive for particular things. You may want to become the CEO of your company or become a big star or whatever it happens to be. And you will do things that perhaps don't do great things for your well-being in order to achieve those goals. But as you get older and um, the horizon is shrinking, the distance to the horizon is shrinking, you start changing your view and you start looking more towards things that will give you immediate pleasure. You're less concerned about those far-reaching um, achievements, and so you may focus more on family or friends or hobbies or other things that you view highly. What about physiological factors that, that we tend to blame for everything, that is, hormones? Well, I'm sure that there are hormone changes uh, as people age. There are, there are lots of things that could possibly explain it, and I think these results may send people off looking for some of those, and, and that's terrific because None of the theories really explain the patterns that we're seeing. They're general theories. There's nothing special about age 50, for example, that's predicted by these theories. So we'll see what the future holds there. What uh, research are you planning in this regard? We are going to continue to try to understand what needs to go into an assessment of well-being. And the reason that's important is because... The evaluation of medical research treatments, the evaluation of governmental policies is tending in the direction of using people's well-being as, a, as an outcome. That is, how well does the treatment do, not only at, at fixing whatever is wrong, but improving people's well-being? Um, how well does the government policy do to increase people's well-being as a factor in making decisions? So if we're going to do that, we had better have as good and comprehensive a measure of well-being as is possible. So we're focusing efforts there. Well, presumably, uh, you know, a lot of public policy and a lot of private activity is all aimed ultimately at improving well-being. I mean, isn't that the ultimate good by some people's measure 
So studies like this, indeed, when correlated to uh, social policy and correlated to, to physical factors and uh, socioeconomic factors, you know, are, are really, really important. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> um, uh, Couldn't have said it better. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, this all hinges on people's ability to assess their, their well-being or their mood or their feelings or, or what you called affective variables, right? Um, mm-hmm. How much can you trust people's self-assessments? Well, it's not clear what else you would trust. Um, <laughs> if I don't know how happy I am, no one does. <laughs> well, certainly people have the ability to lie, to dissemble about things. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we do trust these kinds of assessments, self-reports, if you will, in making all kinds of decisions. For example, all of pain research is based on people telling us about how much pain they have. Can people lie there? Sure. But um, we know that these um, self-reports go along with their functioning, and there's actually work now going on that's suggesting that it goes along with brain functioning in areas of the brain that make sense for pain. So if we want to generalize from pain, which is very much like an affect in many ways, um, I think that uh, we can say that we're on pretty firm footing. Although I must say, this is a big issue for some of this work to be accepted. Well, you know, I wasn't so much thinking of people lying in their self-assessments as maybe imposing a different standard. Maybe folks, as they get older, get more stoical, and what they formerly would have assessed as a bad day comes to seem like a good one, uh, regardless of how rough it actually was. Well... When we talk about affect and we talk about people's perceptions and experiences, then I would say that if their way of experiencing things changes over time because they have more experience with the event or for whatever reason, that still is their experience. That is the accurate assessment of their experience. So I would argue that that's what we want. So, so even if they are, in a sense, just lowering the bar, and now see experiences as as good or or even great that they would have seen as mediocre or bad when they were younger, that is a form of improved well-being. Sure, and (laughs) it really makes a lot of sense for us to try to figure out what makes people's bars, as you put it, change. Uh Uh-huh. How old are you? How old am I? I'm 58. And are you looking forward to getting older? I wouldn't say that I'm looking forward to getting older, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to be younger. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's a pretty common answer. That's a very common answer, surprisingly so. But um, in a recent interview, someone had said they had done a uh, informal survey with folks who were about 25. None of them had that impression. They, and none of them wanted to be 50. <laughs> they were all afraid of it, I imagine. Yeah, well, whatever, no. Well, well, there's certainly a lot of cultural conditioning about fearing age, you know, and... Uh, sure. And, and avoiding, you know, confronting it. And, and so uh, studies like yours or, or studies like the one that you assessed, I would think that we should provide some, some, some uh, comfort to people about the aging process. Uh, perhaps, yes. Well, here's hoping. Uh, and, and thanks a lot for your time. My pleasure. Arthur Stone is Distinguished Professor and Vice Chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Stony Brook University. And that's it for today's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I will return next week. In the meantime, our website is 7thAvenueProject.com. 
There you can find out more about the show and listen to archived audio of the latest programs and past broadcasts.